And what I found is that love with no strings attached is profound. Simple words done in a loving way, placed at the right time for the right person to see, can make a world of a difference. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Today on the Find Your Voice podcast, we get to speak with a woman who is not only a longtime friend of mine, she is also a mentor to me through her work as a public speaking coach, and she's also a student of Find Your Voice as she's working on a book. Amy's day job involves running a consulting company called Distinction Communication with her dad, where she provides speaker coaching for business professionals and executives across the country, including TED Talk speakers. And of course, by nature of their business, Amy is also a professional speaker herself. But we also spend a good bit of time talking today about an organization Amy never meant to start called Don't Give Up Signs, which started with three simple words and 20 yard signs in her small town of Newburgh, Oregon. Amy's duties today with Don't Give Up Signs include social media engagement, customer service, website updates, customer order fulfillment, and vendor relations. But what I'm so excited for you to hear today is for Amy to talk not only about her expertise as a speaking coach and about her process with writing, but also how three little words created a movement that is impacting hundreds of thousands of people. And oh, by the way, this also grabbed the attention of Good Morning America and got her a literary agent and a book deal. You're not going to want to miss her story and you're not going to want to miss the expertise that she has to offer. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. I want to talk about your professional work coaching speakers yeah. as a, a woman in the professional world. You're, you can add to this if you want, but to me, your role is to really equip and empower people to deliver a strong message in front of an audience. So yes, you're helping people. You've helped me. You've been a, a coach to me as a speaker. You've helped me do this, but you're helping people stand in front of a boardroom, for example, and deliver a message. And sometimes these people are people who would have told you they absolutely despise the idea of speaking in front of a group of people. And then you've also (laughs) helped people stand on a TED stage and deliver a message to thousands of people or sometimes millions by the time viewers see this video on YouTube. So tell us a little bit about what that work looks like and and whatever feels important to you to share about that work. Yeah, I, layman's terms, I am just a cheerleader for people and their ideas uh, they're not my ideas. So I, I can work with a pitch team trying to pitch their service or product to a room of very intimidating potential clients. I'm working with a TED Talk speaker, 12 minutes on stage, a once in a lifetime opportunity in front of 3,000 people. I'm working with a nonprofit and they're just trying to go and fundraise in the fall. And they're not very experienced in public speaking or the engineers who have been promoted and suddenly find themselves having to communicate more in front of groups and never developed 
the skill set of how to do that well. So that's that's where I come along and just cheer them on. You know what? So many people, I feel like, walk into this public speaking arena willingly or unwillingly, and they don't. There's a lot of vague feedback. There's a lot of unhelpful advice. There mostly it's like shooting at a moving target. We really don't know what to do with ourselves. How do we show up? What do we do with our hands? What if I hear my ums and I get thrown off? Uh, And then with messaging, it's, does my content resonate with the audience? Uh, Sometimes we get too close to our own ideas that we forget what it's like to hear them for the first time. A lot of my work in the content realm, working in corporations, mostly in our business, is working with folks in trying to humanitize, I don't know if that's a word, but make these presentations and these trainings more human, you know, integrate storytelling. Who are you as a leader? Do people have a sense of who you are? And we're just trying to bring back the humanity and rip out the PowerPoint reading bullets verbatim. (laughs) And, you know, some clients are great at that and some clients aren't. So we, we face different hurdles and challenges for speakers, but the main idea is you have something to say. I want to help you say it well. Yeah. You can get stuck in your own head. You can get too close to it yourself, or you want to get better and you have challenge and push yourself, but you need someone who will push you harder or deeper or reveal things that you hadn't thought of before. And that's my job. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many parallels between the work you do and the work I do. There are differences too. But one thing I'm picking up is that that a lot of times people say about public speaking, and I can really resonate with this because this is where I was when I first started doing it too. They have this idea about public speaking that like other people are really gifted at this and I'm just so bad at it and I hate it so much that I should that I'm not supposed to be doing it. And that's I really hate I really hate this sentiment. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, well, there's such a similar sentiment in the world of writing that people are like, well, I don't like writing and I'm really bad at it and other people are good at it and they're better than me. So I guess I just shouldn't do it. (laughs) So, I mean, we're kind of like fighting the same battle on different sides of the, Uh I mean, you know, similar, like different sides of the same coin. Right. But yeah, talk to me a little bit about that, about like, because you're teaching people, you taught this to me, a skill set that once you learn the skills around public speaking, it, it's not like, some people are born with this innate, amazing skill. And then other people just didn't get the gene. I guess you didn't get the speaking gene. <laughs> 100%. Here's what I tell people when they hear me speak at a conference or they do take a workshop of mine, they'll say, well, man, you, you're so good, which is kind, but it's my craft to master, right? This is what I do for a living. Sure. Oh, you're so good. You know, you, you, but man, it's just hard for me. I just, I'm not a speaker. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't innate, you know, innately good at these things. And I want to shake them and (laughs) I don't physically shake them, but sometimes (laughs) I do get really, I get really forward and I say, please don't sweep under the rug all my hard work to develop these skills by simply saying I was born with them. Sure. Because I have done hard work. Uh, If I'm good, it's a product of my practice. If Mm -hmm. I'm good, it's because I'm a product of what I preach. And it's because I've invested to master my craft. Please don't brush that under the rug and diminish my hard work by saying you either have it or you don't. And Amy, you just have it. Hmm. There are things that can set us up to succeed in it, in speaking, I think, 
for example, you have a lot of experience being younger, whether it's band or choir or acting where you're in front of groups of people and maybe you love that. Well, of course, that's going to make you less afraid speaking in front of groups. It doesn't make you better which I think is another myth, just because you feel good doesn't mean that you're actually doing it well. (laughs) You're not a really great assessor of yourself. So people can say, man, that was the worst. I bombed it. I was so nervous. I, my heart was beating out of my chest. And yet someone else can sit in the room and go, well, I couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah. You, that I couldn't hear you sucking for air. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I get someone who says, I know I'm in this training because my manager made me I love speaking. I just wing it. I feel super comfortable. No big deal. And then they get through the training. And in the first hour, we're having them practice and we videotape and play it back. And man, it's humbling. I can yeah. see the confidence almost fade from them. And I don't enjoy that. But what it is, is, is it's a reality check. I'm paid to be a truth teller. And I'm, and people who have felt comfortable, uh, it doesn't mean that they're always missing the mark, but your comfort is not a clear indication that your audience is inspired or informed by what you just said. Yes. So I come in and say, your feelings aren't a good assessor and how, and I will be here to tell you the truth in a safe environment. And we're going to get really practical. So roll up your sleeves. I love that. I love that approach. The one thing I think the level of comfortability on stage does for you is it helps you dial down all those primal, yes. the primal fear instincts that sometimes can overwhelm us and turns off the, the higher thinking part of our brains. So like, for example, when I, it used to be for me, when I would get on stage, I would get so nervous. I would get so much stage fright that if I didn't have something really, really memorized, there was no pulling it up because my body was being so flooded with cortisol and adrenaline and whatever. And you did, you taught me how to dial that back. I mean, you taught me skills really to help me, to help me grow in the comfortability that I had on stage. So that then I could speak with the kind of clarity and intellect that I would speak if I was talking to my best friend on the phone, you know, where you might stumble over your words and then you don't go down the dark hole of like, oh my God, they all hate me. Right. Right. Yeah. I have, I have so many thoughts on that. I, three things, let me give you, I I think this will kind of cover some of my response to that. There are three tips that I give people no matter where they're speaking, whether professionally, formally, informally, large audiences, small audiences, virtual, in person. Mm -hmm. There are three really basic, basic tips that I give. Let's say Missy, my, my friend texting me, I'm speaking and I'm scared. Number one, do you know your content? Hmm. Because if you don't know what you're going to say, then it's never going to feel good. And, and there are a few minority people who say, I wing it and I do better. And I would say, are you sure you're better? (laughs) Are you sure (laughs) that you do better when you're winging it? It might feel better, but are you sure? So number one, know your content. If you're having to present other people's materials, if you didn't have as much time as you wanted to, to flesh out this new talk, it's just not going to feel good. And to yeah. your point about the fear and the primal instincts, which do come into play, we get fidgety, we drop our eye contact into thinking spots, the ceiling, the floor, the walls above people. There are reactions that we have and the solution, which no one wants to hear. Amy, how do I feel better? 
repetition, repetition, repetition. Yeah. The more you do it and don't die, the more you're <laughs> less, the less you're afraid of it. Yeah. And so here, do you know your content? So getting really familiar with what you want to say, knowing what it is that you have to share. The second tip I give people is audiences do not want perfect speakers. They don't relate mm -hmm. to perfect at all. And yet we get stuck in our heads about, I blubbed over, I flubbed over that word and I missed that one slide. And oh my gosh, I bet they see how red my face feels right now. And, and we get so stuck on don't make a mistake, don't make a mistake, don't make a mistake that we leave the stage in or boardroom and have no idea what came out of our mouth. Mm -hmm. We don't remember anyone who was in the room and it feel, we feel defeated. The pressure to be perfect will cripple any speaker, no matter how experienced they are. So the second tip is mm. authenticity over perfection. Audiences will forgive a lot of mistakes, a lot of awkward mannerisms that I coach people not to do, but you could do those <laughs> things. And yet, if you still come across as real, vulnerable, transparent, authentic, relatable, conversational instead of scripted, authenticity will always win over your audience every time way more than a perfectly crafted talk. So know your content, what you want to say, choose to focus on being authentic and present over perfect. And then the third tip that I give people is really should be reminiscent of the coaching that you and I have done, which <laughs> is eye contact is yeah. the most important skill in our culture that communicates confidence. You can't fake it. It's, it's so critical. And one of the best ways to quickly understand what good eye contact is, because there's a lot of myths out there, is developing the rhythm of when you're speaking, speak to one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And when we speak to one person at a time, you're never preparing to speak to a room of 50. You're never practicing your TED Talk for the audience of 2000. When you get on stage, when you get in front of that boardroom, when you get in front of the classroom, you talk to one person at a time. And our measuring stick is about three to four seconds each. But the mindset that will help you find that rhythm is by just connecting to one person at a time. That's what makes us look conversational. We're not scanning the room, reading our slides, but we're actually engaging. We're talking with them, not at them or over them. And that makes a huge difference. I love that. Those, those pieces of advice you're giving are so reminiscent and parallel to the writing process. I think there's I think there's just so much to unpack there, but that's, those are super help, helpful tips that you gave to me as you were coaching me. And then the other thing I wanted to add that I remember you saying to me all the time, I would call you right before I was going to go on stage because <laughs> I will say to this day, the repetition has helped me so much to kind of put like the bodily response that I have in a proper context. Yeah. And I know that what's happening is just my body's way of preparing me for, for the performance that, you know, like to perform what I'm about to do. And I can kind of cope with it and manage it better. But I still, before I go on stage for a few hours, won't eat any food because my stomach gets pretty upset and I'll, I'll get nervous. But I would call you before I would go on stage and you'd be like, Allie, I want you to, I don't even know if you remember this. You'd be like, I want you to remember they paid you to come <laughs> here. And, yeah. And I want you to remember that if you were speaking on the phone to, uh, the phrase you would say to me is that the audience will only get what you give them. That's right. So just like if you were speaking on the phone to a friend, the only thing that they hear is what you said to them. So they don't know what you forgot to tell them. They don't yep. know that you, that you 
quoted that statistic wrong or that you, the only thing they know is what you left them with. Right. So those, those two tips also were super helpful for me to kind of stop the story that plays in my head before I speak on a stage, which is like, you're a nobody. No, you know, right. What the heck are you doing here? Like there are 10 people in the audience who should be speaking over you. Um, Everybody else is better at this than you. You weren't. Oh my gosh. I hear that one all the time. All the time. What makes you the most nervous that people are just poking holes in what I'm saying because they know more than me. Yeah. It's like, well, then why are you the one doing the presentation? Well, (laughs) right. Because someone along the line said, you're it. You're qualified. You have a unique angle. You have the experience. You have the freshness. You're new at this. And that gives you fresh eyes. You're the one that, you know. So yeah, not diminishing what we know. Mm. And sometimes that's fake humility. And sometimes it's insecurity. Mm. But I think it boils back to what down to what we had talked about before is you're not proving anything when you're speaking. You're not proving, you're not trying to win over the audience. Really. You're trying to share your information and ideas in an effective way because you're joining the dialogue of a bigger conversation. Oh, that's so beautiful. Not trying to prove anything or win anyone over. You're joining the bigger dialogue. Yeah. And I'm not the be end all end all. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I tell speakers who get really spun out, uh, (laughs) I have to be careful. I, you know, part of my job is I have to read people really carefully to figure out how hard I can push them without them hitting a wall and then crumbling, which is not a positive experience. So (laughs) I have to read people. But there are some times when people are such a wreck about speaking that I will look at them in the eye and say, it's not about you. You're making Hmm. it all about you. It's how you're going to come across, what your boss will think of you, if the client will choose you, but you're making it all about you. What's the idea? What's the service? What's the product? What's the process? Like It is not all about you. Uh, mm. And then I'm saying, let's tell a story about who you are. So it is, but <laughs> it's too, sure. you know, nuance, nuance. It's both. Right. It is about you, but it's not. And when we focus so much on how I feel and what will people think of me, we forget to serve the idea and we forget to serve the audience. Wow. That's so powerful, Amy. That's, that feels like something I want to meditate on for a long time. <laughs> The other thing I will say that you mentioned is the the feelings right before speaking. And you you are now very experienced. I I get so happy when I see pictures of you speaking on big <laughs> stages because I remember the days when it was just not Amy being a writer and a speaker are two different things. Help yeah, me! Yeah, yeah. And then I just entered into this book writing process. Ali, I'm a speaker, not a writer. Help me! Right. Yeah. But the the pre speaking jitters, even if it's an informal small setting, whatever it might be, virtual when before people start logging in, it's. I want to say it's really normal. And psychologically, there's a trick that might be helpful for some listening where instead of saying, oh my gosh, I feel nervous. Oh my gosh, I feel nervous. Oh my gosh, my heart's beating on my chest. Like, instead, I feel those, not all the time, but sometimes I feel those jitters and I will just say, oh, I I guess I'm feeling super excited to go. Let's go. Yeah, I'm yeah. ready. And I rename it. So, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so nervous. No, it's my body. It's gearing up. It's so excited. And I I rename it. And I don't, that's not a magic wand, but it is helpful. It's called reframing. Yeah. 
It is helpful. It's really one other thing I'll add that's going to seem like kind of a side note, and maybe it is, but has been helpful for me to think about as a woman speaking on a stage Mm. is how we live in a culture that has for centuries celebrated men as communicate public communicators. And from the time they were very young, put men in positions where they were required, expected, um, anticipated to lead and to speak and to deliver content and messages in front of people. And, and our culture has not done the same for women. In fact, there is a, I think an underlying stigma in our culture that says men are better communicators than women. Men are more trustworthy than women. Men are smarter than women, whatever these, mm-hmm. these false narratives are that we hold on to. And I just, I want women who are listening not to underestimate the impact that those hidden subconscious false narratives play in our own ability to allow ourselves to open our mouths, even in a boardroom, even in a meeting, a team meeting, when I sometimes have to remind myself, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm the boss. Like I can, Mm. you know, like I just think it's, it's interesting to think about how we've been kind of steeped in this culture where we're, as women, we're supposed to defer to the the man sitting next to us. No, that's fair. I haven't, I haven't really experienced that, especially surprisingly, I guess, in my corporate work. I work with a lot of senior executives, C-suite individuals, along with all other teams. And a lot of male-dominated industries for certain corporations we work with. And I've personally never felt like, oh, they're surprised the trainer is a woman or their coach Uh, is a woman. Uh, Not that that's not playing out in their head. But one of the things that I do talk about in trainings when it's brought up is I will tell you right now, there. when I look at the, the male participants in my trainings and the female participants in my trainings or coaching, and I look at their skills across the board, no one has an advantage. Men hmm. are not innately stronger. They're not. Yeah. I'm not in my experience. And I have coached for eight years now, thousands of people probably at this point, and never mm-hmm. once have I noticed a pattern of men are just a typically, they start a little stronger in the day. They start with a better baseline than they're never. Wow. It's the same okay. mannerisms I see in men that I see in women. There are two areas that are different. Sometimes women will talk in a higher register at first when they're creating a first impression to sound kind and inviting mm-hmm. where our normal register is lower. And it doesn't sound as honest or authoritative when we go unnatural into a different kind of pitch or tone. And the second is women tend to cross their ankles and their posture shrinks when they speak. Uh, Men don't cross their ankles. They'll do other behaviors that look as nervous. But for women, I'll always say men don't cross their ankles when they speak. Uh, Stand up straight, feet apart, a little bit more confident and steady Mm -hmm. in your posture. Besides those two things. I'm not saying, besides those two things, there's not many physical differences, but that doesn't mean that mentally or relationally in the room dynamics, other things aren't going on. But at least I want to call out the myth that the skills are different or that there is an innately better position for men to speak. That's not true. That's so important. Thanks for adding Mm -hmm. that. I want to transition a little bit right now to talk about something that seems really different, but it's actually, it actually is so connected to the work. Words. Yeah. (laughs) Words. So I want to talk about don't give up signs. Um, Maybe let's start by you just giving listeners an introduction to the movement if they don't know about it already. 
In May of 2017, I was sitting with a bunch of friends. It's a church group. We get together once a week for over eight years now. And so it's chaos. There's young kids running around all the time, stealing cookies off the kitchen counter. But we we try to get together and have intellectual conversations as adults, mostly talking about uh, how we lead meaningful lives. We were sitting around one night and one of our friends, Mark, is a teacher in the school district, a chemistry teacher, and said, you guys would not believe the suicide rates in our district. I don't remember the number. I just remember being dumbfounded. And if you know me, I am someone who just is, takes action. Maybe it's the trauma I experienced at 14, losing a loved one, urgency. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. <laughs> we got to do something. The problem was with suicide, it's an intimidating conversation. I'd never struggled with mental illness. It wasn't around me that I could tell in my family. I had no immediate experiences with it. And it's intimidating and heavy and dark and feels hopeless and helpless. So what do I do about it? And the, the most obvious answer is nothing. You're not <laughs> educated. You're not equipped. You don't even have personal experiences. You're not a counselor. But a couple years before, I had read a book called Love Does by mm-hmm. Bob Goff. Good book. Uh, and I was so struck by how ridiculous he was in loving other people. <laughs> that I, what on earth is radical, weird, whimsical way to love people? And while reading his book, I had this idea. It was fleeting. It was fast. But it was an image in my mind of big white yard sign with three big black words, don't give up. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's weird, a yard sign. And I kept reading his book, but then every month or so, I would see that in my mind's eye and go, gosh, that's so bizarre. That's so weird. Well, in May of 2017, that night when I was struggling with it to figure out how do I respond to this crisis in my community of mental illness and self-harm, I thought, I have no idea, but I can print yard signs, those stupid signs. I can print those and I can put hope on a sign. We put 20 signs out to my husband and two young daughters. We asked strangers who lived around the high schools and the high traffic roads in our small town of 25,000 people, asked them if they would put the sign in their yard for two weeks. I showed them the sign. There's no website. We're not a nonprofit. We're not fundraising. It's not political. It's in response to the suicides in our community. Every single person took the sign out of my hands enthusiastically. Wow. And it was intimidating. I'm a people person, but knocking on strangers' doors was yeah. not comfortable <laughs> for me. Yeah. Within a day, our community Facebook page exploded. Where are these signs coming from? They said, don't give up. You matter. Your mistakes do not define you. And you are worthy of love. So super simple. Uh, response was fast. It was swift. And over the next couple of days, we came out out of being anonymous and said, here's why we did it. If you want signs, we'll facilitate more sign orders and pass them around town. Well, within four days, it was 150 requests. People from out of town had driven through our area and requested signs in different states. We were having a hard time knowing how to collect money and pass out the signs. We were getting requests from emails, text messages, Instagram messenger, Facebook messenger. Wow. And I about lost my mind. 
because I have a day job. <laughs> and uh, finally, my husband said, we need to put together a website. We put together a website late at night. We bought a URL and don'tgiveupsigns.com was born. And within mm. 18 months, we had product in all 50 states, became a legal 501c3 nonprofit organization that sells all of our hopeful tokens, yard signs, wristbands, decals, pencils, pins at cost. We are three volunteers, three women who do have other jobs, but we volunteer our time to facilitate spreading these hopeful tokens to people who want to do some good in the world. And I just looked today, we have over 750,000 different tokens of hope around 26 oh, countries. That's incredible. Yeah, it's been wild. We're in an interesting season in our world right now with a pandemic and our activity with the movement has, we've been bombarded with people trying to spread hope, encourage sure. one another, cheer each other on, build solidarity. And when they can't go anywhere, staking a sign in your yard for the essential workers who are out and about or the people running by or going on walks seems like a pretty simple, tangible thing they can do. And it's been beautiful to see. It's so beautiful. It's just, it's such a testament to me of the power of three little words that you just, these words in your yard. I said to you a couple of days ago, I said something about how I know you've heard stories back from people. I thought, I was under the impression that you had had people leave you notes on your door, uh, like on yeah. your front door. And you said it actually wasn't your front door. It's other people. No, people are getting these beautiful notes from strangers. I have a friend. I have a friend. I want to hear about him. Yeah. I have a friend in Corvallis, Oregon, actually my unlikely friend, Missy, who uh, we have now decided we're actually very likely friends, but we disagree (laughs) on a lot of things. She bought signs and posted them in Corvallis and she's gotten 10, 12, a dozen more notes from strangers on her doorstep, sometimes mailed to her address, your sign was so uplifting to me today. I'm going through a divorce. I'm struggling. I just lost my job. I Mm. am an addict trying to break it and beat it. And she's gotten so many stranger notes. And I thought, what the heck? I haven't gotten any. (laughs) And (laughs) I, (laughs) yeah, how is that fair? Wait a minute. But the there are hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people who have just have just chosen our tokens as a way to spread hope in their communities. And they're getting these notes and of uh, they're sending them to me. So I've seen, gosh, maybe a hundred handwritten notes from a stranger of you have no idea what it meant for me today. And they, you know, left it on someone's doorstep. I, wow. It's just, but strangers, strangers. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's quite remarkable. I, when I put the signs in my trunk, the day we staked them out, just 20 yard signs. It was my one thing I was going to do to take action on something that felt heavy, having no expectations, zero vision, just do the thing. Don't overthink it. Just take the action. Yeah. Just do the thing. I put them in my trunk and thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. This is foolish. This will <laughs> help no one. This is embarrassing. It's embarrassing you think this will help people. But I was doing it anonymously, right? So I thought, well, what the heck? I'm going to put them out. Who knows? Who knows? No one knows. It was 140 bucks, which to us at the time seemed like a big deal. So I was a little nervous about that. But even more of the reason to actually go stake them and not let them collect dust in my garage. Sure. And what I found is that love with no strings attached is profound. 
simple words done in a loving way, placed at the right time for the right person to see can make a world of a difference. There was a man, it was about six months after the movement started. He was in Salem, Oregon. He was going to pick up a pizza for dinner for his family. He was driving home from the pizza shop and he had been struggling with severe depression for over seven years. And he had decided that that night he was going to go home and take his life. There was a a street, that a route home that he would never normally take, but it was nostalgic. It was uh, the road that he took to school when he was a little boy. So he decided to drive that route home. And on that route, he saw something on the side of the road that stopped him in his tracks. He pulled over his car. In someone's yard was a sign. One side said, don't give up. And when he pulled over and looked in his rearview mirror, he saw the back, which said, you matter. He started weeping in his car, pizzas, the smell of pizzas filling the car. He's feeling foolish for his thoughts. He's feeling depressed that he even has the thoughts of depression. He's feeling guilt, but he also feels like that sign was for him. And he went home and instead of taking his life, he told his family how deeply he was suffering. He changed his route to work every day to drive by the sign. And he wrote an anonymous letter to the address of the sign three months later and said, your sign didn't take away my depression. Your Mm. sign didn't solve my problems, but you should know that your sign saved my life. Wow. And it's not the only message like that. The extreme is that people are on a path of self-harm and have encountered the sign again at the right place at the right time or a wristband or a card those stories have come in and those are the ones we just know about. But like I said, it's the addict who's just trying to, who was driving around in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri, young man, 28 days to- sober, has an AA meeting, doesn't want to go, is really struggling with his sobriety, not sure he's going to make it, wants to get a drink, driving in circles. And he's driving around the neighborhood of the church where the AA meeting is unsure of what he's going to choose to do. And he passes a sign that says, don't give up. Hmm. He turns his car around. He drives into the church parking lot, walks into his AA meeting, sits down and says, 28 days sober. Not sure I want to be sober anymore. I'm having a really, really hard time. In that group is a woman who has a longer sobriety And she knew where the sign came from three weeks prior, her Jewish synagogue, their leader, uh, pastor, I would say pastor, nope, priest, rabbi, the (laughs) rabbi was preaching and used our movement as an illustration of how to spread hope and love and gave everyone in their congregation things to give away, wristbands, uh, some yard signs in the foyer you could pick up and take home. All of it was gone after the service, and she had staked some of the yard signs, maybe not the one the gentleman saw, but she knew where the sign came from, and she's sitting here in this AA meeting listening to him. I showed up because of that sign, and sometimes that's the victory, is just showing up where we need to be, and with vulnerability and with honesty. So to hear the different stories, different experiences, it's been such a compelling, inspiring front row seat to hope, hope in action, tangible hope, empathetic action. Uh, it, there, there are so many 
I, I could talk, I could write a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> perfect transition. <laughs> that is a perfect transition. Honestly, I feel like we could talk all day about this because the stories truly are so yeah. powerful and I'm, I'm pregnant. So that's my excuse, but it's making me weepy over here as you're talking about it. I, we have a, we have a lot of listeners who I know want to write books. So I want to make sure we take a little bit of time to talk about your journey to getting to the place where you, you know, have a book that's coming out. Um, when is it officially coming out? April 21, April, 2021. Okay. So we've got a little time before it comes out, but (laughs) you've been on such a journey to write a book starting with you and I started working on a speaking book together a while back because we started having this conversation you were like, maybe I should record my thoughts into a book, but there's all these other books out there that are, that talk about the same topic. And I was like, yeah, but Amy, the books that that we need, we need your unique addition and perspective to this conversation. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most popular speaking books that's out there is terrible. (laughs) I think it's just unhelpful (laughs) as a person who wanted to learn how to speak. So all of that to say, that's kind of a side note, but we started working on this speaking book. Yes. slowly p- plugging away at that book. And in the midst of that, you got a got a surprise email from an agent in New York. That's right. So I've been working on this speaking book for years. Every time I was on a work trip, I'd take the alone time in a hotel room away from my kids to write. And it was, we were going to self-publish, so there's no due date. And it was just something I was constantly working on slowly in the background. When in May of 2019, I was on vacation, the first vacation our family took to Hawaii, the four of us, when I got an email from a friend who was fulfilling orders while I was gone for Don't Give Up and said, Amy, I'm so sorry. We ran out of product. We did the best we could. I thought, wait, What? I bulked up. What are you talking about? So I go in my emails, which I've logged off of for seven days. I was so proud of myself. Log back into my emails. And there are hundreds of orders. I just, I, 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 my mouth fell open. And one email was from a guy in Seattle who had ordered signs from us a few times. He said, Hey, Amy, I know you're on vacation, but if you see this, will you give me a call? Good, Mar- Good Morning America is trying to get a hold of me to interview me about my yard signs. <laughs> <laughs> and then I kept scrolling and it was media requests. So in May of 2019, we went viral or national news that was shared, you know, a Yahoo article that was shared 20,000 times in the Washington Post called and Fox News Lifestyle and all these different different outlets. Because of the exposure, uh, a couple weeks later, I had an email from an agent in New York, a literary agent, say, have you ever thought about writing a book? 24 hours later, I get an email from a publishing house saying, have you ever thought about writing a book? <laughs> hmm. It was on my bucket list. I was writing a book. Yes. I didn't anticipate this book, but the message was timely. People were resonating. Even though our movement is not technically a suicide prevention movement, it's why it happened when it did. Uh, But it's, if you, you know, look up our information, we're not only one cause, but the the national conversation around suicide and people acknowledging it's a crisis in the statistics we have given something for people to do to try to spread hope. And so it's a timely conversation. I understood why they thought maybe this is a book. There's obvious interest in this topic. I think I called you in a panic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with a literary agent. <laughs> and, 
And you said, well, maybe you should shop around. So I put feelers out there for a few other agents. I only interviewed two. I knew I should strike <laughs> while the iron's hot. I went back yes. to the original original guy who reached out to me, who obviously saw something in what we were doing and believed in it personally to reach out to me. And I said, let's do it. He helped me write a proposal, him and his business partner, which was so much more intensive than I thought. A sample chapter of a book I never set out to write an outline of the book that I had no idea what I was supposed to write. Like it was all in my head. It was all in the experiences. It was all in the, you know, private messages and the stranger letters. I mean, the content's out there, but for me, it's what is the book? What are the chapters? How do you capture it? What do people care to know? I'm so close to it. So how getting some help in writing the book, book proposal, the still delivering a beautiful proposal with still not having a clear idea of what every chapter might be in the, the layout of everything, just the general concepts. Quickly, we had responses. The agents did their magic in getting the best offer that we could and signed a contract uh, for a book deal with a big uh, publisher and have been on this journey of literary world Oh my gosh, it's so different from my speaking so world. It's so amazing. Uh, one of the things I love so much about the story is I think that that I can say with relative confidence that every person out there who's listening who wants to write a book dreams of having an opportunity like this, which, you know, you hear about it, you're like, oh my gosh, out of nowhere, quote unquote, this right. agent reaches out to you and believes in something you're doing and wants you to write, they read a blog post you wrote or they or they stumble across something you said on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> like every author has this fantasy, right, of that happening. But I, what I want to do for people who are listening is dial it back a step and remind them that you started with three simple words with the intention mm. of creating a positive ripple effect of change in your community. And this to me is it captures the very essence of what I'm trying to teach with Find Your Voice and what I try to teach writers when I work with them is if you get this a step ahead of yourself. And if you're so focused on getting a book contract and a book deal and a you're kind of grabbing at it, then there's not the opportunity to use your words as a powerful force of change in your personal life and in the mm. world around you. And if you do it the other way, if you just take step one first, so often what happens is you get a random email from an agent <laughs> in I'm not saying I can guarantee that every single person's going to get a publishing contract who's ever wanted one. But what I'm saying is by the time you get to that point, your hat isn't hung on the rung of, well, if I don't get a publishing contract, right. then this was all for nothing because yeah. you have you have the stories of people whose lives have been changed by your words and that satisfies you and fulfills you completely. So that by the time the book comes around, it's icing on the cake. Yeah. In fact, it was so strange because I remember, you know, with the movement, it was two years at that time in the making. It was so much of my time. It was, a, it was a, it felt like a full-time, a second full-time job at times, not getting compensated, just feeling it was like the right thing to do. And when a book contract came around, it was so shocking, unexpected. And oh my gosh, I get paid for it. <laughs> like even that was something totally I remember <laughs> I remember that conversation with you you're like wait hold on back up what did you say about an advance on royalties <laughs> like, you're like I get paid at the time I write the contract <laughs> and when I submit it and when it p- publishes yeah yeah I'm like Amy you have good morning America on the line they are going to pay you money to write this book <laughs> oh it's it's getting them to come back to interview me I've had especially now readers digest I did an interview with 
a couple days ago and my publishers were like, let's hold them off. And the digest <laughs> is, no, we're not going to wait a year. Yeah, so no I feel really bad that the exposure is not coming at the right time for the business, at least a side of things. But, uh, you know, the book really for me is the icing on top. It's the purpose. It's the action. It's the engagement that spurred the book. That's the most important for me. Yeah. I believe this book is going to have a massive impact, Amy. I really do believe that. And I think it's it's so fun to watch your story unfold, both as your friend and as your student and as your teacher. Yeah. We have yeah. this cool like trifecta of a relationship. And it's so fun to watch the story unfold and just pay attention and marvel at how it does such a great job of demonstrating the power that words can have. We start with something small. We do what we can with what's put in front of us. We don't focus on getting, you didn't go searching for media attention. You were on vacation. You had your email turned off. (laughs) Yeah. We do zero marketing, zero marketing. We don't brand our products. People have to find us. Yeah. That's amazing. Speaking of which, if people do want to find Don't Give Up Signs, if they want to get a sign or any other kind of token and put it in their yard or wear it or whatever, where can they find you? Yeah. You can connect with us on Instagram at Don't Give Up Signs. And similarly on Facebook, we also have don'tgiveupsigns.com where you can watch a story about how we started and read people's responses and find ways that you can spread hope and love in your worlds. We have some pretty, I have some pretty exciting opportunities coming up to share this message to a broader audience. Those opportunities have been on hold, but will hopefully revive themselves in the fall. And so there's a lot of momentum leading up to the book being published next April. So I hope that people join our, our movement. I hope you're inspired by the stories that are shared. I hope you see you know, the right message at the right time on your screen when you're scrolling through your newsfeed and we've posted something that resonates with you. So I do hope that people join what's been a very growing community of the Don't Give Up movement. I love that. I'll ask you the last question that we always ask in these interviews, even though I think the answer might be obvious, but maybe you can mm-hmm. distill it down for people. Yeah. Uh, in thinking about the power that words have to transform our personal lives, our communities, and the wider world, how do you hope that your words have an impact on the world? I feel like that's a really big question for me to answer on a whim. On <laughs> see, as a You're speaker, like, okay, thirty seconds. Let's go. <laughs> as a speaker, it's really hard to do interviews because. I craft my content. <laughs> you sure. can't craft content in a conversation. Uh, when I was 14 and my I witnessed the death of my brother, Jeremy, I had that sense of urgency that I think informs my answer to your question. Mm-hmm. And that urgency is, I just have to make my life count. I yeah. was 14. Maybe I only have four more years. Jeremy was 18. You know, what if I have only 18 and so really quickly at a young age, I was forced to grow up and no false pretenses that I have a long life ahead of me. I didn't know. And instead of that being scary, it was a rallying cry of make my life count. I think how I've defined that, it ebbs and flows on a granular level, but on a bigger level, it's love people well. It's not going to be about climbing the ladder and writing a bestseller book and and all the things it's, did people feel loved by me? Did I benefit? Did I add value to people's lives? That's what I want to do. I, when, 
all is said and done, the legacy I want to leave with my words, probably more with my actions than my words is I loved well. I was generous with my love. I learned how to love people who weren't like me and I love them well. And that I guess is really simple, but how I think how it all shakes out is that's how I know if I've lived a life that mattered. That's really beautiful, Amy. Thank you so much just for for the work you're doing in the world in so many different ways, but for being an inspiration to all of us and for this beautiful reminder to make sure that our lives count in some really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for you spending this time with us today. One of my favorite interviews we've done so far. I'm just really, really grateful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, friend, for having me. I hope people leave with some practical speaking (laughs) and then inspired to just take the action that feels foolish, but that you just can't not do anything. Do the something, believe in yourself. You have nothing to prove. Thanks for that. Thanks for listening to the find your voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple podcasts, And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.